Thank you for joining the Zen Care Podcast. These recorded Dharma talks are given freely to our community in the heart of New York City, which we are honored to now share with you. New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care is dedicated to transforming the nature of care through contemplative practice by meeting illness, aging, and death with compassion and wisdom. Learn about us at zencare.org. Hmm. May we realize the true meaning. In the Talmud, it says, do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now. Love mercy now. Walk humbly now. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. I've been finding these words as a wonderful refuge for myself. In thinking about Robert Bowers, the man who went inside the Tree of Life synagogue and killed many people. Joyce Feinberg, who was 75, a research specialist, a mother of two sons and a grandmother. Richard Gottfried, who was 65, who had opened a dental practice with his wife that they ran together. And Rose Mallinger, who at 97 was a Holocaust survivor. Jerry Rabinowitz, at 66, who was a primary care physician for people in the town, every day caring for people. Cecile and David Rosenthal, 59 and 54 years old, who are members of Achieva a Pittsburgh nonprofit that provides support to people with disabilities. To Bernice Simon and Sylvan Simon, retired at 84 and 86, still philanthropists and community activists caring for people in need. Daniel Stein, 71, who was mostly known for his very dry sense of humor. Melvin Wax at 88, and Irving Younger at 69. Thinking about them. 
the people they are. Who had gone to a place like this to pay attention, to be prayerful, to care. not knowing that was their last day. How rarely we actually are aware of our days. This reimagine end of life festival this week is a reminder that it is always here. May the memory of these 11 people be a biting reminder that we just don't know. And that there is so much work to do. to open our hearts, to feel the grief, and whatever you feel, angry, disoriented. At the end of the Buddha's life, he wanted to go back to where he came from And he returned to the town where he came from to find that everyone had been killed. All his remaining family was wiped out in a tribal problem. One group feeling like they were right and decided to wipe out the Shakya clan because they didn't feel like they were right. 2,600 years ago. And today, thinking of the people in Pittsburgh to realize that the same problem addresses us now. Nothing new. Nothing new. People have hated people throughout time. People have killed other people because they felt that they were not the right people or people at all. What are each of us going to do about that? How do you fill your days? We were just on retreat and Chodo told this amazing 
and harrowing story of his time in Africa with people living in squatter camps and infected with HIV AIDS. So that we can have gold and diamonds. They're all workers in the mines of gold and diamonds. One thousand people living in one camp with one spigot of water. And yet every day they're expected to go and work the mines. So we that so we can have gold and diamonds. Days after the Buddha had witnessed the massacre of his family and extended clan, in his last days, knew that he was dying himself. And he asked his, one of his main students, Ananda, There is so little time, he said. Please ask me anything you want. If you have any doubts, ask. So that afterwards you won't have any regrets. I wonder how each of us spent the day today and if we asked the questions that we needed to ask. If we spent the day cultivating a mind that was open to ask. And how amazing, after witnessing such grief, and probably experiencing such grief, still being open to serving. That is so inspiring to me. Because he doesn't want other people to have regrets. But none of the monks around him would ask him anything. They all hesitated. All of them, it says, were silent. I imagine many of them who had dedicated their lives <coughs> to their teacher and the path itself. filled with grief of their own. And how sometimes when we're filled with grief that we don't know what to say. 
So the Buddha, in his kindness, asked again, please ask me. And again, they were silent. And a third time, please ask me, what do you want to know? What would be of help to you? And again, the monks were silent. So the Buddha said, perhaps it's out of your respect for your teacher that you remain silent, that you don't question me. Imagine I'm just your friend. Ask me. And at that, Anada said, it is wonderful and so marvelous at this moment that you would offer that to be a friend. I believe that in all the great company of all these monks, there's not a single one who has doubts or questions. <laughs> who believes that? <laughs> the Buddha said, thank you, Ananda. This may be a matter of faith or belief, but I know that not a single monk gathered here has any doubt or questions. So I offer you this. All components of the world are changing. Not a single thing lasts. Work hard to gain your own salvation. What is this work hard? Do you work hard to free yourself <coughs> from your habitual way of functioning? Or do you just kind of go along? Do you just kind of go along? <coughs> the tendency is very strong to just go along. I remember for many years, I just kind of went along, even while I thought I was really practicing. But most of my days were in oblivion. And that was before smartphones. <laughs> now you can see everyone in oblivion, mm. like, mm. 
<laughs> Maybe some of you have that experience. The Buddha's last words were really about being watchful and being concerned. Or some Stephen Batchelor translates it as watchful care. Such a beautiful expression, watchful care. Imagine if you were watchful and caring about how you thought. When you kind of find yourself in a loop, watchful and caring. Oh, I'm in a loop. I think I'm right. Or in your words about how you're expressing to yourself or others. What if you're watchful and caring about that? <coughs> what am I saying? to myself and others. How am I functioning? Am I really doing the best that I can? Am I working hard here? Or am I just on automatic? Because I know how it goes. Another translation of one of the things that the Buddha said, that last two sentences are, conditions are subject to decay. Like everyone. Every condition in our life is subject to decay. And I find that it's so amazing because I have this habit of thinking that whatever I'm concerned about or what I think is really important is like an actual thing. It's so crazy. And then everything feels very rigid in my mind. And then my words get rigid. My actions become rigid. But if we were to really take on that everything is subject to decay, how do we hold things? How would you work hard then? And in what way would you work hard? The word that is often translated as salvation is apamanda. Which 
which sometimes is translated as fear and trembling. Work with your work hard with your fear and trembling. Work hard with your fear. It's so amazing how often we just kind of go along with what we're afraid about and then turn it into a thing that we think is permanent. But as a person I like a lot says, you know, you'll be dead a lot longer than you'll be alive. You'll be dead basically forever. <laughs> and we're alive for like a blip. But how are we using and working hard with that which for sure will decay? In another earlier text, he says, Monks, I know of no other thing of such power to cause the arising of wholesome states, if not yet arisen, or to cause the waning of unwholesome states, if already arisen, is apamanda. Another translation of this same word is watchful, awake and alert. So much can be read into this one word. So many ways to turn it. How do you turn the words that you say into think about what they actually mean? Especially when we say things like, I'm like this, or I am sad, or I am grieving. What do we really mean by that? How can we really be watchful, alert, and awake? And how was this his last instruction? Right before he died. Being so generous. Another translation of this word is energetically cherishing the good. How do you energetically cherish the good? <clears throat> so easy to complain. The Buddha would have had like fabulous reasons to just throw in the towel 
I don't know what that would be like to uh, go and see everyone that I ever cared about dead, killed, mangled. Probably all of us would be like, yeah, just go into a traumatic, grieving state. That would make sense. So where does he kind of, he's, what is he doing to turn it into, in that state, also understanding that we have to energetically cherish the good? How do we completely feel grief and energetically cherish the good together? How do we make a commitment to what is good? Along with our anger. So not suppressing anything, but actually allowing ourselves to feel grief, anger, whatever it is, irritation, disorientation, and appreciation. I know for myself, when I get caught in one side, I tend to fall into trouble. I wonder about you. Where do you fall into trouble? I met this morning with some of my peers who all work with people at end of life. And we were really sharing how important it is to feel many things all at once. That's often why, in some ways, why we go around the the room and try to hear at least two feelings. Because we're never feeling one feeling, actually. Joy and sorrow. Irritation. And magnificence. Rage and sorrow. And to me, one of the ways that we can really examine this is in our meditation practice. Maybe even just what happened when we were meditating together. Some of us get caught in trying to do it well, which is just one side of it. And some of us realize sometimes well 
sometimes distracted. And maybe the whole thing is what the practice is. Realizing we fall down and we get up. That it's experiencing the corrosive, typical way and freshness. Probably none of us need to practice following our corrosive way. (laughs) We all have PhDs (laughs) in habitual ways of thinking. But how do we actually really guard our mind also? And allow freshness. It's like those orchids. They're so fresh looking. So beautiful. Isn't that also our mind? We need each other. The Buddha was always pretty much surrounded by community. Because much of our life we fall into forgetfulness. We were coming back from the retreat yesterday and the person who was taking us back to the city said, so what do you think is the core of what you teach? People love to ask those kinds of questions. Can you sum it up? (laughs) I said, weren't you on the retreat? (laughs) I think that what we teach each other when we're together is how to remember what we know already. To me, it's like, how do we collectively teach ourselves to remember what is wise, what is caring, what is compassionate? We know. We all know. Somewhere inside all of us also lives that. What is clear? beneath all the gunk that we throw around a wheel. What Shantideva, a wonderful teacher said, called just our afflictions. But beneath all of our afflictions of what we do to ourselves, we also have wisdom. And we also have compassion. And we actually probably all know what we have to work hard to wake up. But left to our own devices, we're a little crazy. 
were a lot crazy, <laughs> like myself. And it's also heartbreaking. And we can do such unskillful, harmful things. Like that man. Who was sure he was right. He was clear. And knew what had to be done. I really can relate to that. quality of mind. That killer. It's such a place of pain in myself. When I don't see other people as people, I see them as an inconvenience. I don't see the freshness. I don't see the orchids. I'm caught up. It's so easy to go there. The practice of apamanda, of taking care. is to be, you know, Stephen Batchelor says, is just about being continuously on guard. To watch how we slip into that. The lack of caring. We don't care about how we're affecting other people. To me, it's amazing, you know, like while we're even sitting here right now, like, are you aware of how you are and how that's impacting the people next to you? Like that simple, right? And rarely do we consider it. It's like we become unconscious all the time. We fall into our habitual ways of thinking. And I know for myself, in those moments, I do, in my own subtle way, kill everybody off. One of the other famous, probably apocryphal stories of the Buddha was that one of his last things that he said was, make yourself a light. Be aware. Make yourself awareness itself.
And I know for myself, when the moments when I'm aware of what's happening, while it's happening, knowing that everything changes, I'm much more tender. So to me, in some ways, the Buddhist last instruction was also how to cultivate tenderness. And if we're not feeling tender, taking a breath, coming into the softness of our belly, coming into our body, and wondering, how I can come back to be like an orchid. So I'll close with a poem from Mary Oliver called The Buddha's Last Instruction. Make yourself a light said the Buddha just before he died. I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal, a white fan streaked with pink and violet and even green. An old man, he laid down between two solid trees. And he might have said anything at all, knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward. It thickens and settles over the fields. Around him, the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs, disattached in the blue air, I am touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow rays. No doubt he thought of everything that happened in his long, difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills, like a million flowers on fire. Clearly, I'm not needed. Yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly beneath the branches, he raised his head. He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. Thank you.